our precious Father in heaven. You told us that, first of all, entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings are to be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. He said, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then you affirm there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all his testimony born at the proper time. Now, our Father, we come to you this morning. We are to pray for all of our leaders, but we want to specifically today pray for our president who has contracted this virus. We pray your hand would be over his life this week. I don't know where he stands spiritually, but we pray that you'd use this in his life for good. Thank you for Mike Pompeo and our vice president and the secretary of education and the secretary of health, Ben Carson, and uh, so many who are born-again Christians right on his own cabinet. And we are grateful for many of the federal appointments he has made for constitutionalists, but most of all, we're grateful for human life that he has protected more than any president since Roe v. Wade. We bless you, our Father. You told us in your word that we are to deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering to slaughter. Oh, Lord, hold them back. You warned if we say we did not see this, does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? Does he not know who it is who keeps his soul? I will, not, will I not render to every man according to his works? Father, these are precious children made in your image, 60 million plus gone. Our land is soaked and saturated with blood. And we think of the possibility of Roe v. Wade being overturned and slowing the stop of abortion in our nation. And we pray in your grace that you might do that. We know we don't have a perfect king, only one who is perfect, King Jesus. But you did say our leaders' hearts are in your hand, and like a channel of water, you turn it in whatever direction you wish. You promise that the nation that would bless Israel, you would bless. And so we are grateful for what our president has done to protect Israel. Your word says that you establish the borders and nations of this world. We're grateful that he has protected our southern border. So in your mercy, give him health and grace and sustenance. Thank you that he still affirms in his own heart in speaking that marriage is between a man and a woman, period. Now, our Father, we are fragile people. We are sinners saved by grace. Thank you that anyone and everyone is welcomed here, prostitutes, drunks, homosexuals, adulterers, fornicators, all are welcomed. And thank you that anyone can be forgiven and changed and made a new creature in Christ through faith in him. And so we humbly bow before your word this morning and for its truth, that we would have ears to hear, that we might be forever changed and become more like Jesus, who redeemed us with his own precious blood. Help me, fill me, and use me. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. Would you take your Bibles this morning, please, and turn to Hebrews chapter 6. 
Right now, I'm between expositions, uh, books of the Bible. I had completed the Revelation, if you were with us. It took nearly three years. And I did a 10-week series on Elijah and most recently a three-week series on spiritual gifts. A man wrote me from Pakistan just two days ago, and he asked the question, I'm trying to discern what my spiritual gift is. Help me. And the key is spiritual growth. And that's what this series is on. You hold a newborn baby, and you don't know what God has equipped this newborn to do, to be like, whether they are artistic, mechanically inclined, whether they have a proclivity towards the intellectual realm or the artistic or musical realm. You don't know until they grow. And the same is true in the spiritual realm. Until you grow, you will not discover and be able to utilize your spiritual gift to serve God and His people. But if you do grow up, that gift will begin to manifest itself. And so in one sense, this series on spiritual growth dovetails the series I just completed. First, we started at the end of chapter 5, and we dealt with the subject of perpetual infancy. And if you were here last week, we studied Hebrews 6, 1 through 8, where we dealt with a warning against not growing, a very severe warning. And today, we're going to address the subject of God's call to grow. Now, while this passage of Scripture, the sixth chapter, is a difficult and challenging passage, it's not impossible to understand. And there are many, many rich truths for us to embrace and to apply today. I want to begin reading in verse 9, where we left off last time, Hebrews chapter 6, beginning now in verse 9. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work. And the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and then still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than, than themselves, for men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus is entered as a forerunner for us, having becoming, become a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, no one can escape coming into this world as a baby because it's the only way to get here. But it's tragic when a baby fails to mature. As much as parents and grandparents love to hold and cuddle a newborn, their earnest desires that that child grow and develop and become a mature adult. And the same is true in the spiritual realm. When you're born again, you become what you weren't before, a child of God, John 1.12, but you become a babe in Christ. And while God enjoys you as a babe in Christ, 
He doesn't want you to remain a babe in Christ. Again, when you're first born physically, you're aware. All of you remember your birthday, right? <laughs> you know, you're aware, you're crying, you're screaming, you're doing all those things that little babies do. But as you begin to grow, you become more aware. You discover you got hands and feet and toes, and you begin to crawl and walk. And the whole world opens up to you as you grow up. The same is true in the spiritual realm. And so, as you can see, the title of this morning's message is God's Call to Grow. And what we find here this morning are three motivations based on the person and character of God by which we should grow. Now, you've heard me say it many, many, many times over the decades that every text has a context, and it's in the context of the words, the sentences, and the paragraphs that verse 9 finds its meaning. Notice verse 9 begins, but... But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. And so you immediately see a contrast that is being made at the start of verse 9. And so by way of introduction in today's passage, let me just review where we've been. I don't feel like this is wasted time because I recognize that this is one of the top five passages that people are going to ask you about. Hebrews 6 is one of those texts that every believer ought to know and understand. And so if you remember, he opens this chapter by exhorting believers to grow up. Look at verse 1, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Messiah, the Christ, let us press on to maturity. God, through the writer, wants them to leave the elementary principles about Christ. He wants them to become mature, teleos, full-grown, complete. He's saying, leave the ABCs of the faith and move on to more meaty truth that you can become stronger. Stop spinning your wheels on the basics. Press on to maturity. And let me say it again. If you are not growing this morning, you are digressing. If you are not moving forward, you are not standing still. You are backsliding. Decaying always starts when growth ends. And so we are to press on to maturity. A Christian is not like a fence post planted in the ground, but like a tree that is to grow and mature and blossom and bear fruit. And so the first part of his solution is positive. If these Christians are to mature, then they must pursue maturity. But then he gives some negative counsel, if you remember. At the end of verse 1 and then into verse 2, with the insertion of the little word not, he gives six Old Testament practices that must be left behind to go on to maturity. Follow along. Let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. All of these things are somewhat foreign to us, but they were basic to the Hebrews He's writing to Jewish Christians. The problem is, is that these things that he just listed just pictured Christ. They were shadows. They were foreshadows of the reality of the Lord Jesus. Now, I'll not take the time to review those because we spent a lot of time on them last week. But if you're listening for the first time, you can go to searchthescriptures.org, download the sermon, or you can get the phone app at the app store and listen to that message. But suffice it to say that these six Old Testament practices were just a shadow of the new covenant. They were baby things. Now, with that exhortation, he now moves on with a warning in verse 3, which is a rather sobering warning. 
And this we will do if God permits. What does he mean, if this we will do? What's the this? Pressing on to maturity. We shall press on to maturity if God permits. That's our goal, if God permits. And of course, many of you know that sometimes the word if in the Bible can have different nuances. If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. It carries the word sense. It's a certain kind of conditional statement in Greek for emphasis. But here, the way it is structured grammatically in the New Testament, it means if. It's a condition. If God permits, let's press on to maturity. You say, why in the world would God not permit it? Isn't that what God wants for us? Yes, it is. But this passage reveals to us there are times when God will not allow a believer to press on to maturity. We'll press on to maturity if God permits, because maybe He will, and maybe He won't. Some of you are thinking, when would God not permit it? Well, the answer comes in the warning that follows. And this is a warning not written to the lost, but to those who are saved. It's not written to an unbeliever, but to a Christian who needs to grow up and move on. Now, pay close attention, because this is the hardest section of the passage. So let me give an, an overview first. Look at verse 4. He gives a case in point. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. You see, God does not permit it in this case. And why not? Since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. So to help us to understand this situation, what it's like, he gives both a positive and a negative illustration. First, the positive illustration in verse 7, describing the person who is able to press on to maturity. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation, useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But then in verse 8, he gives a second illustration for the life that is not permitted to press on. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and ends up being burned. Now, that's the flow. Let's delve again into the details just briefly. Again, here in verse 4, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. So here in verses 4 and 5, he gives us five characteristics that could only apply to the born-again believer. I won't review them because we looked at them very carefully in detail. But what becomes crystal clear is that when you study each of these five characteristics, he cannot possibly be describing a lost person, someone who just had a brief encounter with Christianity, someone who tasted of Christianity but didn't drink of it in the truest sense. No, we saw each of these words found in other places in the book of Hebrews and in other parallel texts in the New Testament that can only apply to a born-again believer. Like Jesus who tasted death, same word, he didn't sample death, he fully experienced it. And so these people. He's describing someone who's born again, not someone who simply professes conversion, but someone who actually possesses salvation. True believers. Now watch closely as no doubt the hardest verse is verse 6. 
And then, notice, and then, having fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Why? Since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Now, what does it mean to fall away? Well, as I described last time, there are basically three positions that are taken. Some who say that this is the person who is saved and then who lost their salvation. And they do that, one, based on the fact that they see these words like tasted and become partakers used in the rest of the New Testament of someone who's a genuine believer. But that cannot be what the Scripture means. That is a faulty interpretation. You say, how are you so certain? Because the best interpretation of Scripture is Scripture itself. But they say that this is a person who was once saved, now are lost, and those who are consistent say they are described further in verse 8 as those who are eternally lost and burning in hell. But that's an untenable position because, number one, not only does it contradict hundreds of passages in the New Testament that once someone is genuinely saved, they cannot lose it, they contradict the plain teachings of the writer of the Hebrews who teaches our eternal security. The Bible teaches that we are secure forever. If you turn over a page to chapter 7, in verse 25, he says, Hence also he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, through Christ, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You turn over another page to chapter 8, and in verse 12, he's quoting the prophet Jeremiah, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more, not now and not for all of eternity. And then you turn over again to chapter 9 in verse 11. He says there, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. There's a tabernacle in heaven. The Bible teaches that Moses was given plans of in which to create the earthly tabernacle that was later expressed in the temple. We studied that in our series on the Revelation. He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and that through the blood of and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained, underscored in your thinking, circle it in your Bibles, eternal redemption. These are verses when someone says to you, you can lose your salvation, say, well, let's look at some of these verses. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. For by one offering he has perfected, notice, for all time, those who been sanctified or saved. And so the theme of chapter 11 is that by faith, we affirm that God is able to do everything that He has promised. And then in chapter 12, that Christ has provided for us an eternal kingdom. Listen to 12, 28. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. And so we are assured, again in Hebrews 13, let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So verse 6, it's a major haven for those who teach, you can lose your salvation. But typically, they're never consistent. Experiential theology never is. And so they teach often, well, you can get lost 
and then saved, and lost and saved, and lost and saved, and born again, and then unborn again, then born again again, and then unborn again again, then born again again again, and it's just sheer nonsense and folly. This is a death blow to Arminian theology, because this verse is very clear, that it is impossible, not hard, impossible to renew them to repentance. Now, the second position that is taken is that he's not describing lost people, but those who are truly saved. People, they argue, who have made a profession of faith without a possession of salvation. And there are many texts in the New Testament that describe such people who, quote-unquote, get saved, but time shows that they were never really saved, but not this text. But their argument is that this is a description of someone who's come to the edge of salvation, and then they reject the faith. But neither linguistically nor contextually can you build that case. And so they argue this is an individual who's come under the convicting work of the Spirit, but they end up rejecting Jesus Christ. People who say they have been saved but never have, and so they have apostatized. People who have cooperated with the Spirit of God but who are not truly born again. Now, again, let me say, as I mentioned last week, I'm at least appreciative of that interpretation and that they are trying to be consistent with the rest of Scripture, the rest of Scripture that teaches that you cannot lose your salvation. And so if God wrote the whole of Bible, the Bible and does not make a single error, then you really narrow it down into two positions. He's either writing a saved person or a lost person, someone who's lost, who quote-unquote apostatized, or someone who is saved but who is given a very serious warning. Now, verses 4 and 5, we looked at the words enlightened, tasted, and partakers. And in every instance in Hebrews and in the rest of the New Testament, in every single instance, these three Greek words are only used of born-again people. So those who teach this position, they have to do a lot of semantical footwork to come to it. Now, Scripture interprets Scripture. And while other passages in the Bible clearly tell us what these verses do not mean, they don't necessarily always tell us what they do mean. And so this is why it's important that you look at the broader context. And that's why we started in chapter 5, because the chapter divisions added almost 1,200 years after the Scripture was completed are artificial and can sometimes be distracting. And so the paragraph that precedes it and the paragraph that follows it, verses 9 through 20 that we're going to examine today, are critical to understanding the whole text. Now, in the immediate context, please understand that when he writes here of those who have fallen away, they have not fallen away into hell. This is not the word for fall away that is translated apostasy. It's not the Greek word apostasia. There are apostates in the New Testament who walk like a Christian, who talk like a Christian, who come into the church. It's the theme of the book of Jude. And then they reject Christ. And we've seen some major mega church pastors and leading Christian artists in the last 18 months who have done this very thing. Very, very sad. But remember, this word for fallen away is a word uh, peripipto. In fact, it's used of the Lord Jesus, who in the Garden of Gethsemane falls on his face as he agonizes in prayer. 
It's uh, used of other people in Scripture. There are others who fall away who are not lost. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira, they fell away to the point of physical death, but you'll meet them in heaven someday. They came under the severest physical discipline that God can administer to one of His children. And so, First John speaks of a sin that leads not to eternal death, but to physical death. Uh, Peter fell on the night that he betrayed Christ three times, but he was not lost. John Mark washed out at the end of the first missionary journey, but he was not lost. You can fall away without losing your salvation. In fact, if you read the whole letter, it's very clear that not a one of these people are at the point where they want to renounce Jesus Christ as Lord. No, their problem is indicated in the first warning. There's a number of warnings that go all the way through the book. In the very first warning, it's found in chapter 2. And the issue is not of rejecting salvation, but neglecting salvation. They were not paying close attention to the things that were preached. And so chapter 2, if you remember, opens with these words. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. They were not paying attention to what they were taught. They were Christians who were drifting. And it's easy to drift as a believer. And so he'll ask the rhetorical question in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Not reject, but neglect. Their problem was sluggishness. They had not pressed on to maturity. They were in danger of falling into a permanent state of immaturity because of their unwillingness to believe and trust God. And so Hebrews 11, what also helps us to understand here is the context of Hebrews, of what's going on in Hebrews 6 is not only the immediate context, but the thrust of the whole book. I took a course once in seminary by Dr. Dwight Pentecost just in the book of Hebrews, and over and over and over again, he had us read the entire book, and then we had to write an argument of the book. I had an 85-page argument that I used on the book of Hebrews, trying to understand it. And then I took a course called Acts Hebrews, and in that course, you had the option to write an argument on Acts or an argument on Hebrews, and since I was taking them in the both semester, you can guarantee what I did in that other course. I wrote two papers for the two different courses, which was totally legitimate, though I didn't understand it. Dr. Pentecost gave me an A+, and Dr. Toussaint gave me an A-, that's neither here nor there. If you've studied the book of Hebrews, you know that God uses these Jewish Christians as a type, as an illustration of those who came out of Egypt. God saved the Jewish people out of Egypt with His strong and mighty hand in order to deliver them into the promised land. And that journey that should have taken 11 days took approximately 40 years. They lost their way, not because they lost their map, but because they lost perspective. And they lost perspective because they had become dull of hearing, and they were dull of hearing because of their unbelief. And so they came to the edge of the promised land, and not Moses' idea, it was God's command. God said to Moses, send 12 spies into the land, not to see if you can take it. He promised it, but how they were going to take it. And of course, if you remember, 
Those 12 men came back, only two, Joshua and Caleb, believed the promise of God that in spite of the huge obstacles in entering the land, they knew that God would be faithful. They were sharp in their hearing. The other 10 were dull. And so the people believed the majority report. And so what did they say? They came to Moses and said, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. And by the way, it is this very illustration that Hebrews chapter 4 in verse 2 uses as an example of the truth that the word they heard did not profit them. Why? Because it was not united by faith in those who heard. They did not want to press on. They wanted to go back. And so God said, you shall not enter my rest. You're not going to enter into the blessings of the promised land. It did not mean that these people, when they died in the wilderness, went to hell. It means they just did not enjoy the blessings of the promised land. And this same kind of warning is being given to these Hebrew Christians, and by application, everyone within the sound of my voice, if God permits... Let us press on to maturity. Now, I don't think it's accidental if you read the Exodus account that the exact same five advantages that these Hebrew Christians had, they had back there in Moses' day. And again, if you weren't here last week, go back and listen to the message because I enumerate them. But in spite of the privileges, they were not pressing on to maturity. They missed God's best because they had become dull in their hearing. Now remember, these were people who had been redeemed by blood, with the blood of a lamb. And it was symbolic, of course, of the Messiah's blood who would offer himself on a cross. They were still redeemed from Egypt, but they fell away from the land and they died in the wilderness, everyone 20 years and up with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. And the saddest thing is that when they heard Moses preach the next day of the consequences of their unbelief, they don't repent. They don't, oh, they want to repent, but they can't repent. Moses said, look, you're not going to go into the promise. Oh, Moses, we're so sorry. We are so sorry. We were wrong. You and God were absolutely right. Now, did it mean they were lost? No. God said in Numbers 14, I have pardoned them according to your word. But listen to these sobering words. We didn't read them last week from Numbers 14. When Moses spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people mourned greatly. In the morning, however, they rose up early and went up to the ridge of the hill country saying, here we are, we have indeed sinned, but we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised And of course, God said, it's too late because you did not come on my terms. So it was impossible to renew them to repentance. God forgave them, but he let them live with the consequences of their decisions for the next 40 years. Now, let me bring it here to Hebrews 6. These Jewish Christians had come to a Kadesh Barnea of sorts. They were going to have to make a decision to press on to maturity And if they didn't, they would come to the point where they couldn't press on to maturity. You see, repentance allows the unbeliever to come into a right relationship with God. It is equally true for the saved person. Repentance allows the child of God to come back and experience the genuine blessings of God. Just read the seven churches of the Revelation as we studied them a few years ago. 
But listen, you can't flirt with sin and just say, when I'm good and ready and I've had, quote unquote, my fun, I'm going to get right with God. When you do that, you become calloused. And when you do that, according to verse 6, if you do it long enough, God says, they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Now, remember, these Hebrew believers are under great persecution. And so in order to escape persecution from their fellow Jews, they go back and outwardly act very Jewish. That's one of the major messages running through the book. They go back and they participate in temple worship. And every time, for instance, they had an animal or an offering sacrificed on their behalf, in essence, they were making Christ's death to them as meaningless and insufficient. They were putting him to open shame. And in God's eyes, this was not a small thing. This was a wicked thing. Why did they do it? Because they wanted peace. They wanted to be liked. They wanted everything with their family and friends to be okay. And people are no different today. Many refuse to mature. And sometimes they choose not to mature and that they don't want to know any more truth. Some people come to this church. I call every visitor if they'll leave a phone number. I'll call you online. You leave your phone number, I'll try to call you. And sometimes someone will say, it's too heavy for me. It's too much Bible for me. And some people, they don't want to know the truth. Because when you know the truth and you do nothing with the truth, you are still accountable. Some people don't press on. They blow off the Lord's day. I know this is COVID, but I'm talking about before COVID. Ah, it's rainy, it's cold. Who wants to go to church? Let's just sleep in. Sometimes they dismiss going on to maturity because of a pet sin. They just want to cling to it. They want to enjoy it. They want to hold on to it. Or sometimes they don't like the reaction. You get too serious with Christ. Some of your friends you used to hang with, associate with, maybe play golf with, other things with, they're not interested in you anymore because you're too serious. And if you persist long enough in this spirit, you can reach a point where it's impossible to renew you to repentance. Like Israel of old, who could not go into the promised land, a believer in this age can reach a point where God will just shelve the individual. Why? Because they lose all their desire. You think you come to Christ independently of the living God? No, you don't. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. God Almighty is the one who sparked the desire for you to know the things of God. And when you're born again, everything that happens by His doing, we're in Christ Jesus, and our sanctification is by the Spirit of God. And you put God off long enough, you'll lose all desire. And I am convinced some people that I've tried to help over and over and over, it's just impossible to help them. They'll never go on to maturity. Why? Because God has just shelved them. And when you refuse to go on, you align yourself with those who say, away with him, crucify him. You see, those who say that this is a passage exhorting the lost to get saved, they have an assumption that repentance here is in reference to the lost person, but it is not. Just like in chapters 2 and 3 of the Revelation and many other instances in the New Testament, this is saved repentance. And so in verses 7 and 8, he is not talking about the root of salvation. He's dealing with the fruit of salvation, as he will bring out in our text today the things that accompany salvation. So speaking of the possibility of losing one's reward, verse 7, 
For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. That's describing the fruit of a believer who's pressing on to maturity. But by contrast, the sluggard, dull Christian, but if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. He's not talking about the fire of hell, but the fire of the judgment seat of Christ where every believer's works will be tested. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, the quality of each man's work, the scripture says, will be tested with fire. So some Christians, they live in immaturity. Why? Because they don't want to be in hostility with the world. They want a peace. They want to be liked. Listen, if you've got a high school student and he's headed off to the university, there is going to be solid, constant, unrelenting opposition for the born-again believer, both by the professors and by the fellow students. Please notice it, it, I have it circled in my Bible three times, it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, it ends up being burned, it refers back to the vegetation mentioned in verse 7. Not the life being burned in hell, but the fruit of that life is worthless, it's like wood, hay, and stubble. Their salvation is not in jeopardy, but their eternal reward is once they get to heaven. Now that's just the introduction, that's the review and I felt the need to recap it because unless you have that firm in your thinking, you will not be able to appreciate what follows. So the writer now reminds us of three dimensions of God's character that should spur us on to maturity. If you're using your note-taking outline, first, he reminds us that God deals justly with his people. He encourages us to press on. Why? Because God deals justly with his people. Now, after this strong warning, it would be easy to think, wow, I wonder if this warning that he just gave in verse 6 applies to me. Maybe I've crossed the line and my life is being illustrated in verse 8. Well, the answer for these Christians, if they're asking that question, comes in verse 9. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompanied salvation, though we are speaking in this way. Now, if you've been reading God's Word carefully, then you've picked up the change in pronouns throughout these three paragraphs. I have them all circled. In verses 1 to 3, he uses the first-person plural pronoun. And so in verse 1, he says, let us press on to maturity. Then you'll notice in verse 3, again, the first-person plural, this we shall do if God permits. And by the way, by using the first-person plural, he includes himself. He, by the Spirit of God, by the inspiration of God, is writing a book of the Bible, but he recognizes that he too must press on, that he still needed to grow. Listen, we need to be constantly growing until God takes us home by death or by rapture. But then what's interesting, when you come to verses 4 through 8, he uses a third personal pronoun. Again, I have them all circled. They, those, them, themselves. Yet when you come to verses 9 through 12, the pronouns change a third time to the second person plural, you and your. So of these Christians, he is convinced of better things about the things that accompany salvation. Even though he's saying, I've been speaking in a very stern way towards you, brethren, I'm convinced of better things for you. 
He believes they had not yet reached the point where it was impossible to renew them to repentance. And so under the inspiration of the Spirit, he is convinced that they did not need to leave permanently in a spiritual wasteland. Now, verse 10 begins with a little three-letter word for. It's the Greek word gar. It's what linguists call an explanatory gar, meaning what I am about to tell you in verse 10 is an explanation of what I just said in verse 9. Follow it. He is convinced of better things for them. Why? For God, here's the explanation, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and then still ministering to the saints. Now, do you see the contrast between the word of warning here in verse 6 and this word of encouragement here in verse 10? He does not want the serious warning in verse 6 to obscure the promise of verse 10. He doesn't want them to think that, that, that they are going to live in this wasteland forever. Now, God deals justly, and just as God will deal justly with a person who pursues immaturity, God can equally deal justly with the believer who wants to press on and please God. And so, with this affirmation, he gives not three vague generalities, but three specific ways by which they can please the Lord. God, number one, justly receives their devotion. God justly receives their devotion. The first reason their work can please God is because God is just and God can justly receive their devotion. Now, they were devoted in their work. They were not just Christians performing a task, but they were doing a service out of a heart of love. Notice he speaks in verse 10 of the work and the love you have shown. You know, there are Christians who do their ministry for the Lord because they have to, and then there are Christians who do their work for the Lord because they want to. You see, when you serve the saints, you're serving the Lord. That's what Jesus taught in the Olivet Discourse. He said in Matthew 25, 40, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Now, you know, contextually, he's talking about the way the Gentile nations of the world will treat the Jews. And those Gentiles who are true believers will show the Jews kindness, and so they'll be brought into the kingdom. He's dealing with the fruit, not the root of salvation. And those Gentile nations that despise the Jews, they will go into a place of eternal retribution. But you can take that statement, because it's taught in other places in the Bible, and apply it to the church, that whenever you serve the Lord Jesus... You are Lord Jesus' people. You're serving the Lord Jesus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He had never laid a hand on Jesus, but every time he laid a hand on God's people, he was laying a hand on Jesus. So it is true sometimes that we do things, not because it's our favorite thing to do, but out of love for the brethren, we do it. Now, sadly, some do things just out of a sense of obligation, and the driving motivation in their heart is not the pleasure of serving the people of God, but it's just something that they're supposed to do. Some people are asked to serve in the nursery, and they love it, and they're willing to do it, and they care for those little children. And a mark of Christ-likeness is the way you treat children. Jesus said it's better to have a millstone hung around your neck and to be drowned in the deepest sea than to hurt a little child. And we've got politicians who are arguing one day before the baby's born. It's in this year's Democratic platform. You can kill that innocent baby. 
Friend, that is reprehensible to the living God. So some people, they serve because they have to, but some out of a great heart of love. And that's what these people were known for. Out of love, they were serving the saints. But there's a second reason that God can deal with them justly. God justly receives their persistence. He justly receives their persistence. They serve these saints out of love, but they also had not just a devotion, but a persistent service. Notice, having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. There's a lot of believers who start a task, start a ministry, but they never finish it. They grow weary of the work. Why? Because they grow weary of people. And usually when you find yourself growing weary of God's people, it means that you've grown weary of God. It means your love for God is low. I spent an hour on the phone this week at a Zoom conference call with three pastors who are just covered over in discouragement. Just so discouraged. I said, welcome to my world. You live in a day like this, and you're not going to receive a lot of affirmation from God's people. And if you're living for the affirmation of God's people, you won't last long in the ministry. And so he is reminding them, notice verse 10, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown. A love for God always expresses itself in service for the saints. Don't tell me you love Christ and you're not a member of a Bible-believing New Testament church where you can serve the people of God. And what God says here is that the love you show is never forgotten. He sees it all. And this is a serious blessing. This is a serious reminder that God watches everything that we do. Look, God and His justice cannot ignore the apathy of some believers. Equally said, God and His justice cannot ignore the service of other believers. He doesn't overlook their devotion. So number one, He saw their devotion. He saw their persistence. But God also saw their attitude. He saw their attitude. God justly receives their attitude. Let me read further into verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards his name. All the labor they had done, they had done towards his name. And understand, while work will be rewarded, the work that God rewards that he counts as gold, silver, and precious stone is done towards his name. And if you follow that phrase through the New Testament, you could paraphrase it. It is done for his glory. If you're serving God to be a showboat and to get a pat on the back, it's not towards his name. God sees everything that, he, that we do. And that's an important truth because the fact is, is that most of God's people in this day of celebrity Christianity serve in obscurity. They don't serve in the limelight. They serve behind the scenes. And even those who serve in a very public and prominent way, if they're doing anything worthwhile for God, most of their labor you never ever will see. It's the hidden life that makes the public life worthwhile. And when no one says to you, hey, it's really good job, or thank you so much for being faithful week after week after week, if you're doing it for the glory of God, there will be great reward. Devoted work, persistent work to the glory of God in God's justice is noticed, and the judgment of the just will be rewarded. 
So he starts here reminding us that God deals with us justly. Secondly, he reminds us that God deals with us generously. God deals generously with his people. Please notice how verse 11 begins. And we desire that each one of you, now he's getting very specific. He's been dealing with them as a whole. Now he wants to deal with them as individuals. Now, God's generosity should change us, and he gives us three specific ways in which God's generosity should change us. Number one, God's generosity should lead us to be diligent. It should lead us to be diligent. Let me read all of verse 11. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Now, he encourages them to show the same diligence, which should cause you as a careful reader of Scripture to ask the same diligence as what? The same diligence they had been showing in ministering and in still ministering to the saints. He's like a coach. He's encouraging them to press on. And hope, of course, speaks of the guaranteed future certainty that God has for them. And so they are to keep up this good work. They are to press on with hope until the end. Now, listen, if your hope is in this world, if you're living only for this life only, you're much to be pitied. Because, listen, this world is not going to get better and better. The Bible teaches in the end it's going to become like the days of Noah and the days of Lot. It's going to get worse and worse. And ultimately, God's going to burn the entire planet with fire before he creates a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so he's asking them to think, and by application, all of us, to show the same diligence and enthusiasm that they began with and to carry it all the way to the end which for them, if you've read the book of Hebrews, it means a clean and definitive break from temple worship, that they needed to identify, even at the cost of being persecuted, with the church and the body of Christ in the name of Jesus. Remain faithful into the end because God deals with you generously, and His generosity should lead you to be diligent. Secondly, God's generosity should lead us not to be sluggish. It should lead us not to be sluggish. Now, God's desire is further expressed in verse 12 for them, that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and practice inherit the promises. Now, we've seen this word sluggish in Hebrews 5.11. There, if you remember, it was translated dull. It's the Greek word nothros. It means thick, slow, sluggish, lazy. And in the realm of hearing, it's translated dull. In the realm of service, it's translated sluggish. It's used outside of the Bible in first century Koine Greek of a lion whose limbs are weak and deformed and no push. Likewise, it's used in the Greek translation, the Septuagint of Proverbs, to describe the sluggard, the lazy man. Here he's saying, do not be sluggish. And again, if you've read the book of Hebrews, the source of their discouragement, it was discouragement that made them sluggish. And that discouragement was rooted in persecution. And again, I would just say to you, you need to press on because if you don't press on to maturity, you won't go on. You'll just quit. You'll become sluggish. And if you are living for the encouragement of others, as I told these three pastors, you're not going to make it. They're all in their 30s. Said so you're not going to make it. You will just quit. You will never make it. 
You need to let God encourage your heart even when your congregation is not behind you. I think it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible of King David in 1 Samuel 30 and verse 6. Moreover, David, the Bible says, was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. For all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Listen, it's a blessing when others encourage you. But listen, many times you will be misunderstood, pastor or no pastor. You will be misunderstood. They will just totally miss it, won't even understand the wavelength you're on. And you need to encourage yourself. How do you do that? He's already told us in chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. By getting your head in this book. Yes, on the one hand, God is the one who drives our maturity if he permits it, but we play a role. We must do our part. We cannot be lazy. We cannot be slothful. We cannot be dull. We need to be diligent, as Hebrews 5 and verse 12 says. Now, please understand, again, some of these believers were discouraged and were on the edge of really being super dull because of persecution. Fast forward a few pages to Hebrews chapter 10 for just a moment. Hebrews 10. I want you to see something starting here in verse 32 of Hebrews chapter 10. The writer says, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, there's the word again, speaking of believers, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. He's speaking to Jewish Christians who had been intensely persecuted, and they had become sluggish, but that's not where they started. He brings them back to how they first responded to the persecution. Remember in this chapter, we quote the verse all the time, verse 24, about not forsaking our assembling together, but remember the context. They're not forsaking their assembling together because they don't feel like getting up and coming to church. They're forsaking their assembling because when they walk into that Christian assembly of believing Jews, look who's in that church today. We're not going to go to his business anymore. We're going to give him trouble. And as you study the Bible, you discover that very often people become sluggish, God's people, either in the midst of great blessing or in the midst of great persecution. These in the midst of great persecution. The American church largely in the midst of great blessing. And Moses warned of this temptation just before they went into the promised land. And he gave what Jesus calls the greatest of every commandment, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God, and you are to love God with your whole heart, soul, and might. And then he said this to him: Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you shall eat and be satisfied. Then watch yourself, lest you forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery." 
Look, this is not a perfect nation, but it was started by people who fled Europe in order to be able to worship the Lord Jesus according to the dictates of Scripture and not the dictates of the king. And those first winners were horrible. They lost so many. But now we've inherited their prosperity. This country has been blessed. And what have we done? We have forgotten God. In 1975, 78% of Americans were said to have gone to church on a weekly basis. In the year 2000, it had dropped to 43%. In the year 2013, it dropped to 39%. And the most recent survey done pre-COVID, January 2020, it's down to 24%. And I wonder what it will be like when COVID's all over. We have not only forgotten God, we have spurned God. We said it is a woman's productive rights to kill a little baby in the womb. We said that LGBTQA and whatever letter you want to add to it is admirable and we should esteem it when God calls it an abomination. Look, anyone can come to this church. Anyone can be forgiven. But when you are born again, your adultery changes, your fornication changes, your drunkenness changes, your homosexuality, your lesbian, your willingness to take and affirm the life of little children in the womb. It will all change. But we've become cold and calloused. And as a nation, we have forgotten God, and we are ripe for judgment. We are under the judgment. We are seeing the wrath of God that is being revealed. He's saying, listen, remain faithful to the end because God is so generous. But notice, third, God's generosity should lead us to imitate the faithful. It should lead us to imitate the faithful. Now look at verse 12, that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, we're to imitate those who inherit, not earn, those who inherit God's promises, and this is important, or discouragement will set in, imitate, imitate those men and women like Abraham who modeled faith and patience clinging to the promises of God. He's asking them to keep their eyes open, to look at good positive models and Abraham, well, he's just the opposite of someone who's sluggish. He's a man who walked with faith and patience because he recognized that God had made the promises and your faith is only as good as the one who made the promise. And when you come to chapter 11, he's going to spend a whole chapter illustrating this very point. But for now, he gives a singular illustration with Abraham. Let's keep reading. Verse 13, for when God made the promise to Abraham... Since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he, Abraham, obtained the promise. We are to imitate those men and women throughout the history of the church and those recorded in the 11th chapter who believed God, who patiently waited on God. Now, if you know your Bible, then you know what we're speaking of. If you've not read the Bible, then you have no idea what this writer is referring to. And if you're new to the Scripture, I get that. But understand, there's an assumption here that they knew something about Abraham and Sarah. Sarah was 65 years old, Abraham was 75, and God came to him. He said, your wife, she's going to have a baby. I swear in my name, I will make it possible for Sarah to have a child. She will have a son. 
And after you have a son, through this son, I will bless all the nations of the world. And so Abraham waited patiently for God to fulfill what he had promised. A year went by, nothing happened. He waited 10 years. She's now 76, still nothing happened. He waits another 10 years. She's 86. And then when you reach the time where Abraham's about 100 and she's 90, God came back. And he gets more specific. At one point, Abraham, he wasn't rebelling against the promise. He misunderstood. He thought, well, must must be through Hagar and Ishmael must be the son of the promise. No, Sarah's going to have a baby. I'm 100. She's 90. Read Genesis 17 and 18 if you don't know this. But while we're here, let me give you some divine commentary on what took place from the book of Romans. Turn back to Romans 4. I think we have time for it. There's no slides for this. You should turn. Romans, the fourth chapter. Romans chapter 4. In Romans 4, we learn something about Abraham's faith. And while he laughed on the outside in astonishment, he never laughed in unbelief. On the inside, he totally believed and trusted what God said. Listen to Romans 4, verse 18. In hope against hope, he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which he had spoken. So shall your descendants be. In hope against hope, when it did not make sense, when his physical body in no way could pull it off, so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken so shall your descendants be. Now listen to verses 19 and following. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that God, what God had promised, he was able to perform. That's faith. That's believing. When the circumstances shout no, when you have to wait on God for his timing. This text says here, he did not waver in unbelief, but he gave God glory during that waiting time. Remember, his name is Abraham. What's your name? Abraham. Every Jew knew what that meant. A father of multitudes. How many kids you got? None. But he trusted God in spite of the circumstances. So God's justice remembers our loving service. God's generosity should push forward our service because he'll reward us for it someday. But quickly and finally, God deals dependably with his people. God deals dependably with his people. God now demonstrates in verses 16 to 20 at least three ways in which he has proven to be dependable. First, in verse 16, we learn that God's dependability is seen in his word. It's seen in his word. The writer of the Hebrews now brings into focus as to where they live and by application where we live even today. Look at verse 16. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. Now, what they did, we still do today. Twice in a court of law, I put my hand on the Bible and I raised my right hand. I promised to do, I promised to swear the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. You are swearing by one greater than your own name, namely the name of God. And because you are swearing by the name of God, at least historically, that's what we are expected to do. We are expected to tell the truth, that we will not perjure ourselves. 
Of course, the Judeo-Christian system on which our government functions and operates does not work when a nation of people no longer fear God. And so people would gladly swear in a court of law and then perjure themselves at the same time. Our freedoms fundamentally can only function if the nation reveres God. There's no rule of law where there's no reverence for God. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. So in biblical times, before the days of attorneys, and I illustrated this in my series on Genesis with Abraham, men would come to an understanding, and then through different means, they would give an oath, and it would end every dispute. Today, we make a promise, and we might add a handshake to it, to our word, and it heightens the promise that you are going to do that which you've promised. Now, don't miss verse 17. Let's bring it together. Verses 16 and 17. In the same way, desiring even more, and I have those two words circled in my Bible, even more, because God wants to underscore the reliability of his word, his commitment to fulfill his promise. He made to Abraham a promise, and he added to it an oath. And we studied that in our series in Genesis, and I reviewed the unconditional oath that God made with Abraham in a dream one night when he was asleep. In the same way that men make oaths, God desiring even more to show to the heirs, that's Abraham and his offspring, and all who have the faith of Abraham, that's us, the promise of the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed that is guaranteed with an oath. So here is God swearing. But unlike men who swear by someone greater than themselves, God has no one greater than himself by which he can swear. So what does he do? He swears by his own name. Now, why would God do that? Is it not just enough for God to say it and for it to be done? Yes, it is. But many times in Scripture, God will add an oath to what he has said because of the fragility of our faith. And he's not only given the promise, but he's confirmed the promise with an oath. Listen, you put your hand in that Bible and you are swearing because of the authority of the Word of God that what you are about to say is absolutely true. The Scripture says in Psalm 138, Psalm 138, that God has exalted His book, His Bible, above His own name. God has sworn that every single word in this book is absolutely true. Jesus said down to the smallest jot in tittle, and so to drive his point down even further, God is not only shown dependable by the promises of his word, but secondly, God's dependability is seen in his character. It's seen in his character. Now, obviously, it means nothing for a dishonest or unreliable person to make a promise if he is not a person of integrity. The promise is empty. It's of no value. But let's put verses 17 and 18 together in our thinking. In the same way, God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his promise, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. 
Now listen, do not miss this. By two unchangeable things, specifically God's word, we just mentioned, and now God's character, that God does not change. God said in Malachi, I, the God of Israel, do not change. We call that the immutability of God, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he affirms it right here in the text, and that he says, it is impossible for God to lie. Children come in sometimes, and I'll say, can God do anything? And they almost always say, yes, God can do anything. No, there's one thing God can't do. What can he do, pastor? It is impossible for God to lie. Listen, when God promises to do something, we have an uncertain guarantee, a hope that is built on his word, that is built on his character, but it is also built on the dependability of his son. And so now he gives us a third way in which we can stand firm. God's dependability is seen in his son. Let's read verses 19 and 20. I'm almost finished. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, what on earth does that mean? Well, most of you know that we have different symbols in the Christian faith. For instance, here's one of the most popular symbols of the Christian faith, the cross. It's the place where the Lord Jesus died. And this is a symbol of a cross that was found etched in, in a, on a floor in Israel, uh, in a specific place known as Bet Shean. Some of you have been with me to Bet Shean. It's the very town. We've looked at the very place where Saul and his three sons were hung on a wall. Well, centuries later, Rome took that place over. And of course, that place is mentioned in the book of Colossians. But here we find this symbol of the Christian faith. Another very popular symbol is that of the fish. The word fish in Greek is the word ichthus. And here's a more elaborate artifact artifact of a fish found in Israel, and you actually see the Greek capital letters for the name fish. That, those four, five letters there spell fish. But they are an important five letters because they served in the first century as an acrostic. Ichthus. Jesus Christus Theos Weos Soter. Jesus Christ, God's Savior, Son. We paraphrase it, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. And so the fish is a symbol of our Christian faith. And of course, another symbol, maybe less known to many of us, is that of an anchor. And here is a, a picture of an anchor that was found in the catacombs. It was actually etched into the side of one of the walls where some believers were buried. And there are 66 such anchors etched. Where did they get that? They got it from the only text in all the Bible that speaks of Christ being pictured as an anchor, and it's the text we're in today. Sometimes you have a combination of symbols. Some of you have been with me to the garden tomb. That's not the best picture. I know you can't see it super well, but it is the cross and the anchor brought together. And here is a picture of all three found again in the catacombs. You have the anchor, you have the cross, and you have the ichthus. Now, the anchor is an ancient symbol of our Christian faith, and verse 19 underscores it. Look at verse 19. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. We have a sure and certain hope, and it's described, notice, as an anchor that has been anchored within the veil. What on earth is he speaking of? Well, if you remember, God had Moses 
create a tabernacle. When he came down from Mount Sinai, he not only had the Ten Commandments, he had blueprints for the tabernacle. And the Scripture reminds us that the tabernacle he built was a picture of a real, actual tabernacle not made with human hands that someday we will see in heaven. And of course, the temple, a later permanent structure, emulated the same architecture and layout. And if you remember, there was a veil, and on one side of the veil, there was a room called the Holy of Holies, and it was the holiest place on the planet. And that at that point in human history, God in His glory would actually appear when the high priest on Yom Kippur, the Jews just celebrated it earlier this week, on Yom Kippur, once a year on the Day of Atonement, He would go into the, high, into the Holy of Holies and there would be this chest that's pictured here. And it's a box-like structure. They were not to touch it. They carried it on poles when it was being transported. And the top were two cherubim. And the top of that cover is known as the mercy seat. Here's a picture on this next slide of what it looked like on the inside. Based on Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 4, there were three objects in the Ark of the Covenant. There was a second set of Ten Commandments. It represented God's standards. Remember, the first were broken by Moses because of the rebellion of the people. God made a second set. There was the budded rod of Aaron that represented not God's commands, but God's provision of leadership. And then there was the jar of manna that represented God's provision of food. And if you've read your biblical history, they spurned all three. And so once a year, symbolically, the high priest would go in with the blood of a perfect, unblemished animal, and he would place it on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And it was a picture that God had atoned or temporarily covered for the sin. And one of the things the writer of the Hebrews makes a distinction between is sin being atoned for and sin being taken away. High priests could only atone for sin. Jesus took it away. So in verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters not into the harbor, but within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. In the next four chapters, he's going to describe in Hebrews the ministry of Jesus within the veil. You see, when you are in a boat, you anchor down. But when you get saved, you anchor up. The anchor in glory, the Scripture says, is behind the veil where Jesus took it. Now, in Bible days, when a ship came into a harbor, they didn't have engines like our boats in this, these days. They came under full sail. They brought the sails down, and they were dependent on the currents, the wind, and the oars. And there were some harbors in the world that were very treacherous. And so there was a man who would come with his little boat, and he would take the anchor of that ship, and he would put it in his boat. And the technical name for the man who took that anchor and then carried it into the harbor and led the ship safely in, it's a technical Greek word. It's translated the forerunner. Jesus is our forerunner. And this text of Scripture is not about ships and anchors. It's about what Jesus did for us. Again, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. He's gone ahead of us. He is anchored within the veil, our salvation in heaven Listen, if you've been saved, you are inseparably connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of our hymns reflect this. Two weeks ago, 
Mad Hatter sing a hymn on Christ's solid rock. I stand today providentially. I didn't ask him to. He didn't know what I was preaching on. He did another hymn on an anchor. Let me read the one of two weeks ago. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Where does that concept come from? This one place in all the New Testament. You say, I don't see the anchor. Well, I don't see the anchor either when I throw it over the side of a boat. My anchor is in heaven, and while I don't see it, I feel the tug. And one of these days when the tides are right and everything is just perfect, God's going to haul me in, and I hope He's going to haul you in. I hope you've not missed the point of these three weeks. What is the writer to the Hebrews trying to say to us? In the first half, he describes an aimless life, the believer who's not growing. And if that's you and you still have an inkling to make it right, you should start today. But in the second half of this chapter, he deals with an anchored life, that God's person is so certain and real as seen in His Word, as seen in His character, and as seen in His Son. Now, there was a time when I was anchored down and I was headed for hell. But in the mercy and grace of God at 18, I was anchored up. And one of these days, He's coming for me. And I'm looking forward to that day. Is He coming for you? You say, I don't know. What do you have to know? You have to know that Christ died for you. He was buried for you. He was raised for you. That's the gospel. You say, well, I know that, but I still don't know. Listen, if you know that you're bankrupt, that you can do nothing to earn salvation, and that only the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ can save you, and that it's on that basis that God says, you call on the name of Yeshua, the Lord, and I'll save you. If you don't believe that, then you are denying what our text says this morning. See, if you don't believe what God says, you're either saying, God, you can't do it, like you're weak, He's omnipotent, He's all-powerful, or you're saying, God, you won't do it, and if God says, I'll do something, and you say, He won't, you're calling Him a liar, and that's the opposite of faith, and it is impossible for God to lie. Now, I don't know what you're going through and what the winds of this life and the storms may be doing to you, but if you know Christ, you have a sure and certain person to whom you can cling and trust. Now, Holy Father, I thank you this morning for the chance to study this passage of Scripture with my brothers and sisters here. I pray for those within the sound of my voice who have never met you, that they would see that today is the day of salvation, that they must come on your terms, that tomorrow may be too late that the tug they feel today may be gone tomorrow. Their life could be extinguished before this day is over, or Jesus could sound the trumpet and come and receive his church. So help, I pray, someone in simple childlike faith to believe what you promised, because Jesus did what he did, that you can say whoever will call in his name will be saved. Would you say, Lord Jesus, save me? Now, Father, I know the majority of people I am speaking today have met you. But some have lost their push. They are dull in their ability to hear Scripture. And they are sluggish in their service to you, the living God.
We're not our own. We've been bought with a price. We confess that. You are not worthy of lukewarmness, but only passionate service to you and your people. So help some dear saint of God to get it right today. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.